Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. Hello and welcome to The Tonight Show. On the same day that the CSO and Bernardo's released reports painting a grim picture of Irish families struggling with rising inflation, the Department of Finance says they've seen continued strong momentum in the country's tax take coming into the month of May. We have a seemingly healthy exchequer, but who's actually feeling it? People Before Profits' Richard Boyd Barrett calls for government action. We need measures now. Uh, and we need the government to recognise uh, that there is plenty of money in this country, but the problem is that working people and the most vulnerable are the ones who are taking the hit. And later, the fallout from the Depp versus Heard case, a manic weekend ahead for Dublin Airport, and Queen Elizabeth bows out of her Jubilee celebrations. All this and more in our Week in Review. Get involved in the discussion on our hashtag TonightVMTV. A shocking story from the courts. A combined total of 66 years behind bars for five men who took part in the gang rape of a 17-year-old girl in a car in the Midlands. The driver of the car, 22-year-old Marcos da Silva Umbelino of Kilbegan in County Westmeath, convicted of rape and sexual assault, was jailed for 14 years. 24-year-old Eduardo Ferreira Filho, with the same address, convicted of rape and sexual assault and false imprisonment, was jailed for 17 years. 24-year-old Gabriel Gomez de Roca of Mount Armstrong in Rahan in Tullamore was convicted of two counts of rape, sexual assault and false imprisonment and was jailed for 19 years. Ethan Nicolau, who's 23, of Brosna Park, Kilbegan in County Westmeath, was jailed for six years for sexual assault. 24-year-old Connor Byrne of Ballybeg and Moat in Westmeath, who was the only one of the five to plead guilty, was jailed for 10 years for rape. Well, earlier I spoke to our courts reporter for Virgin Media News, Deborah Naylor. I began by asking her for some background on this case, and viewers may find some of the details distressing. Yeah, I think important to note, first of all, this was a night out, I think, that, that any woman can probably remember having. You know, it was started as a very typical night out for this girl. She went out with her friends, went over to her friend's house to get ready. Uh, they were out in Tullamore, went to a nightclub. At one stage during the night, she dropped her phone. But apart from that, it was a very uneventful night. At the end, she split up from her friends to go to a takeaway. Um, and I suppose it was at that point, well, after that point that the nightmare began in this case because there was a group of, of five men who were driving along. One of the men called out her name. She thought that they were friends of friends. She got into the car and moments after they told her, lie down because there was five of them in the car that the guards might suspect, you know, there was too many of them in the car. The sexual assaults started at that point and she was taken to a remote location and um, she was raped 
three times, uh, one after another, by three of the defendants in this case. Two of them got out of the car, they went home. Uh, she was taken off with the other three of the men and, and she was uh, raped further times. Um, and really, um, a camera was taken out at one point and she, I was in court when she was giving evidence in this case on March 3rd. She described how at first she was absolutely paralyzed, just went into shock. But after that, she was shouting and she was asking the men to let her out of the car and she wasn't able to. She was finally able to escape. And of course, it was at that point that the Garda investigation began. Shocking um, details that you're recounting from that case. And we know indeed the victim gave her victim impact statement earlier this week. And in her sentencing, uh, the judge called the depravity of this crime absolutely shocking and said the group behaved like animals. Yeah, very strong remarks today from Ms Justice uh, Tara Burns. And she said that this gang rape fell into the highest level of offending. She said that the crimes committed by the men in this case involved degradation of the most extreme nature. She said that the young woman had been making her way home from a very typical, traditional Stephen's night out in a rural town where she thought she was safe. But she said the men, as you said, had acted like animals without a shred of respect or humanity. And as she jailed the five defendants today, she said that women were not playthings and it was not for a rapist to decide what consent was, that these men could just not decide after the fact that what they had done was consensual. She commended the victim for the way she had conducted herself throughout the trial and referring to something that the woman said in her victim impact statement, how she blamed herself for getting into the car. Well, she said she was not to blame. She had, there was no error of judgment she should expect it that in this society that five men of her age would have taken her home safely. She said the one thing to note from today was after the girl managed to escape to safety, well, her own male friends, you know, looked after her. They brought, you know, they helped her to contact Gardaí and, and the judge said that that was one beacon um, in all the awfulness, she said, of this case. Okay, Deborah Naylor, Naylor, thank you for that. Thank you for bringing us up to date on that. And if you've been affected by any of the issues raised in that report, you can find contact helplines on virginmediatelevision.ie forward slash helplines. Now, record tax breaks, but with children on the breadline, research published by Barnardo's today reported almost two thirds of parents stated that they and their children had to go without essentials over the past six months due to cost of living increases. Over one quarter of parents have cut back or gone without heat, and almost one in four have cut back or gone without electricity. Well, joining me in studio to discuss this and more is political correspondent with the Irish Examiner, Aoife Moore, People Before Profit TD, Richard Boy Barrett, MEP for Fine Gael, Francis Fitzgerald, and Chief Executive of Barnardo's Ireland, Suzanne Connolly. You're all very welcome along to the programme tonight. Um, to start with you, Suzanne, because this, this is research carried out for Barnardo's, I think people will be shocked maybe to hear about that statistic. Two thirds of children going without basics of food, heat or electricity in the past six months. And these aren't people who are uniquely using your services, are they? No, they're not. And we're shocked and really saddened as well about this, this fact that's in our society today. And as part of that, to recognise that some families are even choosing not to bring their children to a doctor because they can't afford it. And what we're calling on the government is to do something about this. I mean, just to give you a snippet for your listeners as well, for children coming to our services, one family talked about having their baby in a coat, a little six-month-old baby in a coat because they couldn't afford heating. For that. They had to keep the baby warm in some way. 
Another dad talked about the fact that his, his two teenage children had to eat out of having tinned food because he couldn't afford fresh food because he had to pay his heating bill. So that is the reality. And because of that, we're saying to the government, we would like them to extend the exceptional needs system they have in, the, in terms of the Department of Social Welfare and instead add to that in terms of hardship funds. So when families need need support, they can get it <coughs> relatively easily and they can't at the moment. And that's what we all feel really shocked and saddened about. And we're really worried about the effect on children's well-being, their health and their development because some parents are really stressed out there. Would you say you're seeing poverty at a new level, a new low now that you haven't, you haven't witnessed before or that divide being ever greater? Well, certainly that's what our staff on the ground are telling us. I mean, some staff have been Bernardo's 20 years and they say they've never seen this level of need before. And it's because inflation has gone so high. I mean, people were living in the bread line before, but now it's way beyond that. And the stress and anxiety out there is second to none. Um, Richard Boy Barrett, you were quite vocal about this today. Indeed, you have been continuously in the doll on, on the, the cost of living crisis that's affecting people. Um, does it chime with what you're hearing on the ground? Without a shadow of a doubt. Um, I mean, it's, it's got exponentially worse in the last year or two, but it's been building up with the rental, housing and accommodation crisis because either people... Uh, can't get anywhere at all to live and they end up homeless and increasingly it's working people uh, who are actually homeless but even if they've managed to find a place they're paying 50 60 and 70 percent of their income on putting a roof over their head and then there's nothing left and then you get energy price hikes uh, on top of it you get food price hikes and suddenly huge numbers of people are just pushed over the edge uh, and so like today we were uh, with other groups pensioners, trade unionists, opposition political parties planning the details of a protest that's going to happen on June the 18th in Dublin city centre demanding a, an emergency package of measures by the government both to ensure that incomes, uh, wages, income, social welfare payments, pay, uh, pensions and so on keep pace with inflation so people can actually cope but also that we start to bring down the cost of living on, in key areas like heating and energy prices, they have to be controlled, rents, uh, housing costs, they have to be controlled, and some of the charges people are paying for childcare, for health and education, these things have to be brought down and made affordable. Uh, Francis Fitzgerald, we're hearing of desperate situations here. I mean, I think a lot of people will be shocked to hear that that report from Bernardas, you know, applies right across the board. It's not just honing in on, on families who are using the services of charities like Bernardas. People are really feeling the pinch here. Is the government out of touch on this? I don't believe the government is out of touch, but it is a very sad and disturbing report uh, from Bernardas, who do amazing work on the ground and know exactly what is happening. Um, it's a perfect storm right across Europe. You can see it. 8.1% uh, inflation right across Europe. The same in America. It's the biggest concern in America at the moment. Uh, no, I mean, the government understand what is happening clearly are in touch. That's why almost two billion has been spent to date. But it's very obvious that more needs to be done. And we have to reduce the charges. We have to reduce childcare charges, the cost of education, yeah. see, medicine, um, and so on. See this idea that more needs to be done. You see, people would say, well, can't the more be done now? Why do people have to wait and go through this summer, go through desperate situation where they're struggling to pay a monthly rent, where they're struggling to put food on the table? And can't emergency measures be brought in now in order to help those people who are referred to in Suzanne's report? 
I believe what you need is a comprehensive anti-inflation uh, package. And I think that does take some time to put together. So you'd now, say it's that's not, not in place already? Oh, it's certainly there isn't enough in place at this point. Clearly more has to be done. What the government is saying, they will, it, they're working on it now uh, to reduce all the costs I've talked about, that it will be in the budget, obviously, when that comes. But it's not as if the government aren't doing anything now. I mean, even this week, you see the work that's being done, for example, by Heather Humphreys on the carers. That what impacts in many families. What that Suzanne's referring to mm. here? And, yes. you know, the, 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 well, I critically, think I mean... Charities at the coalface helping people say this is needed and it's needed now. Well, I mean, personally, I always prefer a more universal approach. You know, through, for example, why is that when the because, poor are disproportionately affected? No, by no, cost but of I, what prices? I'm saying is a universal approach. For example, with the exceptional needs payment mm. that's there already, that could be increased. Mm. Now, Suzanne is suggesting an exceptional uh, fund. Um, the system is already in place within social mm. welfare to reach families. Mm. And I think that might be the place uh, that could look at it. It would be almost like a hardship fund, mm. effectively, mm. but you'd be broadening the criteria in relation to the families uh, who could access it and what they could access it mm. for. And I think that would make a difference. And I think the government will have to look very closely over the next few months before the budget okay. uh, to look at the impact on families and to take, you know, different initiatives that will make a difference, quick, but um, then a comprehensive yes, package okay. in the budget. Uh, what France is saying is that, you know, governments and countries around the world are grappling with this cost of living issue right now. Do you think it's, it, it's different here, Aoife? Do you think that there is obviously this political push and, and push from people saying, really, we won't be able to get through the summer. We actually need that help and that intervention now. What's different here is that before inflation came along, we had a very serious housing emergency. So whenever inflation is getting worse, the housing emergency is only adding to that. And like Richard said, you could be pinned to your collar as it is in any other country, say if you have it in France, but then if you're paying Dublin rents or Cork rents or whatever it is, it's making it exponentially worse. I find sometimes now, especially when it comes to inflation, you hear government TDs like the Taoiseach and the Tanisha, and it's nearly like they're commentators on what's happening rather than people who are in power and who could do something. I know they would say that two billion has been already spent to deal with the cost of living. But like we had these issues in health and housing before and they talk about, you know, they, you will hear the Tisha Cantanas just say, rents are too high. Well, if rents are too high, why can't we do something about it? If childcare is too expensive, why can we not do something about it? And why can we not do something about it now? Uh, we've heard Leo Varadkar talking about the squeezed middle and he's making that big push, that big push um, his pitch, if you like, um, for his tenure as Taoiseach, saying he wants to prioritise middle-income families earning around €45,000 a year. That's what he wants to look at, tax cuts there um, and reduce childcare costs. Um, how do you think that, that, sits, that sits with people? I mean, that, that's a good vote-getter, arguably, I but is it... Is it is it making everyone everyone happy in this country? Well, obviously not. And we know why Leo Varadkar is saying something like that, because it is trying to attract the people that might vote for Fine Gael. When we know, and we've just heard from Bernardo's, that the people who are suffering the most from inflation are the people who are at the very bottom rung of society. So it's all well and good. There are people in the middle who are squeezed. Absolutely. Childcare is too expensive. It prevents women getting into the workforce. But I really believe that when we have people feeding their children out of tons, that's really where we should be looking. Yeah, what do you think when you hear that kind of that commentary um, that we heard from Leo Varadkar saying, look, that will be my priority. I'll be looking at the squeeze middle. I'll be looking at those. And I think he actually referred again to people who get up early in the morning. Um, what, what do you think when you hear that? I wonder 
does he really know what's happening for some children and families in Ireland today? I mean, does he have a sense and a picture of the reality? Uh, because when, when something like that is said, it doesn't speak to him understanding it. And I'm not to say there aren't people who are squeezed, just to say that, across Ireland today, but the people that we're most concerned about are the people who really can't make ends meet. Children, children are living in really stressed out families where parents are doing their best, but they just don't have the resources. They really don't. And so I would love Leo Radker to, to really think about that when he makes statements, which actually come across as quite glib. That may not be in his intention, but that's how they come across. But I have to say, I'm delighted to hear from you, Francis, today, that you're, what, you're, what I'm here you're saying is that this hardship fund that we're asking for actually is possible to achieve and can be done. And that would be so welcome because that would make a difference to children and parents that we care about. <coughs> I know a lot of people in Irish society also care about. We did it with COVID. We've also found money appropriately to welcome Ukrainian people into the country. We can do it for children and families that we're talking about now. Of course we have to do it for children and families. There's no question who are most vulnerable. But when you talk about the squeeze middle, let's be clear, Leo Varadkar is not saying either or. He is just making the point that middle income families are also feeling the pressures right now. And that is true. And we do have to watch the tax bans and the impact with increasing wages to make sure that take home pay really means something for people. So it's not yeah. either or. And I, I, I think it's a bit harsh to say it was said glibly. Um, he certainly uh, is equally concerned and as concerned about those vulnerable families. And I think the actions that have been taken by government, look, no government is doing enough right now anywhere in Europe, I would say. Every government is struggling with this. I mean, if you look at what's happened in the last number of years, let, let's just recapture what's going on. It's post-COVID, it's the slow recovery, you know, it's inflation, it's the impact of the war on energy prices. Uh, the EU, again, is doing a big initiative yeah. to try and okay. cut the cost uh, of energy. I mean, it's a very big series that, of jobs we have to do. Yeah, on that, um, and we heard from the Taoiseach today, you know, there's no doubt in his mind it was part of Putin's strategy to create an energy crisis and then to create a food crisis. Again, relating to the, the situation, um, the war situation as, as make, worsening all of this and that, in effect, a lot of this is out of the government's hands, Richard. Look, <clears throat> we had a housing crisis, a dire housing crisis, before the war in Ukraine. We had uh, energy price hikes uh, of absolutely astronomical proportions before the war in Ukraine. Of course, the war in Ukraine makes things uh, worse, uh, but to pass it off or blame it purely on the war of, uh, uh, in Ukraine is no, utterly, it's a combination, utterly wrong. But the point I want to make, really, is because I think it probably, I mean, of course, Lowest income families are being hit, absolutely mm. being crucified. But about 60 to 70 percent of working people, pensioners, students, uh, people with disabilities, uh, lowest income households are all being absolutely crucified by the housing crisis and the uh, spiralling cost of living. But what's never talked about is there are some people doing very well out of this crisis. And that's well, the there's been an incredible tax take um, so far this year. I mean, the figures are, are um, you know, I think it was. Uh, a major increase, 1.4 billion euro for government. Uh, I, um, absolutely, but I, if I could so, just make this point, because you see, that is never talked about, mm. is the household wealth in this country has actually dramatically increased. Now, that's not into the pockets of the majority of people, but somebody... So what are you saying? You want a sort of emergency budget I, I to think tax we need the wealthy? We need redistributive taxes. Emergency budget, absolutely, but redistributive taxes. I mean, even Boris Johnson has been forced <clears> to bring in a windfall tax <throat> on the super profits of the energy companies, but our government holds out against that. Aoife, on that, you wanted to come in. 
Yeah, I just, you know, we hear all the time that the economy has done well and we're, you know, we have these tax receipts and we have more people employed now um, than we did, I think, during uh, the Celtic Tiger. But that is no good if these people are on low wages and then need help then from the state or whoever else, or food banks or Bernardo's to keep, you know, their head above water. So I, we live in a society, we don't live in an economy. And I just feel so it like, looks one way, but the yeah, reality is very different. Yeah, I think it's all well and good to talk about, you know, how great we're doing in taxes and how great we're doing in employment. But if the people who are in this employment are not getting paid a living wage, then what's the point of it all? Like, it looks great on paper, but then we have, we're hearing the stories from Bernardo's and we're hearing it from working families. So it, it, something has to give here. Yeah, I, I, and on this, like there's more coming down the line when we look at these decisions that are made in Europe around sanctions. Um, there is, um, is there any reticence at European level about imposing these sanctions because of the potential impact that they will have on households? Of course, there's huge concern because there is a price to be paid for bringing the sanctions in. Uh, no doubt about it. But, you know, the price of the, the, the war continuing and the impact on the whole of Europe and our democracy, I mean, Putin is effectively fighting all of us and our democratic values. So it's really important that that war is stopped. We're giving 600 million a day uh, to, to buy gas and oil uh, from Russia. We have to stop that. But what you have to do at the same time is you have to do everything possible as quickly as we can to reduce the, that dependency. And that's what the EU is doing with this new project of Repower EU, which you can't do it overnight, but you have to reduce that dependency as quickly as you can. Uh, would you agree, Richard, these sanctions no, are needed? I, I, I don't. I think, that, I think sanctions are counterproductive. They're going to hurt everybody. And... Do you think they're counterproductive everywhere or would you be yeah, in favour of they're... the boycott, divestment, say, say in the likes of um, Israel? Would you be in favour of the that fundamental... in that instance, yeah, but not in this Yeah, the, diff the difference is that the Israeli state is an apartheid state. It's not a question of, of this regime or that government. It's a, it's a state that is built on the oppression of people, as is, or as was, <clears throat> excuse me, the apartheid state of South Africa. In Russia, the problem is the Putin government, OK? In the same way as during the Iraq war, the problem was the Bush government. We never argued for sanctions against the United States because we understood it was Bush's war, it's just so, like this is It's Putin's softer than war. guns, though, you know, from an anti-war stance. But, you have but, to but there, are economics, <coughs> there are alternatives to both, and that is to oppose war and militarization generally. And what I find deeply ironic is that some of the people who are rightly condemning Putin's warmongering now were supporting, or certainly saying nothing, when uh, the US was invading Iraq and Afghanistan, or when Saudi was bombing the hell out of Yemen for the last uh, five years, saying nothing about it because their allies were supporting this slaughter, but now they're calling out, rightly, Putin. But they're also saying, and the answer to this, okay. by the well, way, I is have no to say, there. I have to say, there. Ben, I'm not at all. <clears throat> when I listen to my Eastern European colleagues who know Putin better than anybody else, they're absolutely clear that we need economic sanctions because you have to use everything at your disposal to deal with a fascist like Putin. You, you cannot be given that amount of money to, to, to literally uh, allow him to do the kind of aggression and attacks that we're seeing. You have to deal with Russia economically. You do have to isolate them economically. You have to weaken them economically. And you have to do it militarily as well, as we're seeing. Of course, everybody well, why, wants why peace, you, Richard. But why listen, do you not propose sanctions against Saudi Arabia then, Francis? We're talking about Russia right now. Uh, Look at the aggression well, that's sorry, there. The people of Yemen are being killed by Saudi Arabia. Yes, right and what's now, happening in right Yemen now. is just... 
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Bad. Look, you didn't well, even, no you didn't even clap Saudi. When, the, when the president, Zelensky, spoke uh, 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 to the door. Because I, I don't mean, believe militarization is the answer, and I don't I'm believe that what do you do with an aggressor standards. like Putin? It's, it, how do you deal with when an aggressor there, like Putin? You have to deal with it economically and militarily, and, and you have that, to try and protect briefly Ukraine. Briefly on that, just before we go, because we, we are on this subject, and it again was, was brought up this week about you know a referendum putting it to the people about this European Defence Force. Um, do you think a referendum is a good idea? We absolutely, <clears throat> we put a bill into the door recently calling for a referendum because we want to enshrine neutrality in the Irish constitution. The Irish government, on the other hand, seem to want to use the Ukrainian crisis as a, an excuse to move and us away from neutrality. It, interesting on that because Leo Varadkar again saying that he thought that people, you know, would be very much in favour of us being part of a European defence force. Do you mm -hmm. think that's the case? Has he got, has he got the mood right there? I don't know. It's hard to know with the public because we actually saw in a poll, in the same poll once that said that um, Irish people were in favour of keeping our neutrality and then in the same poll another number of people, the same amount of people wanted to join NATO. So I don't think people really understand or understood the question they were being asked. I think the Irish people very much appreciate our neutrality. Um, I think neutrality is an important mm. role to play when it comes to these kind of conflicts. There has been a push, not from all of Fine Gael, but some of... Uh, the TDs that they want, you know, talk about adult conversations about neutrality. I don't personally hear that from the people that I'm talking to. But and as Richard said, you know, if they wanted to have a referendum, it would put it to bed. But I just don't Do you think, think there's a big I don't think it's a priority. Adult conversation very clear is uh, is that the Irish people are are not a bit neutral about what's happening in Ukraine. 
not one bit politically neutral. And I think we're having a better debate about neutrality now than we've ever had. Because we're, we're now really examining, what does neutrality mean? You're not neutral about democratic values. You're not neutral about what Putin is doing. And I think it, when you see Denmark overwhelmingly yesterday deciding to be part of defence and security, you see Sweden, you see Finland, um, I think there's a new mood and a, and a need for a new debate. And it's not about How is army. joining NATO it's, a move towards Nobody peace. wants to join NATO. But having a discussion at a European level, sorry, about defence okay. and security, about cyber attacks, we're not going to be able to deal with this on our own. There we have Richard. to leave it. We're going that, to need other people and work with other countries. That's all we have time for on that. My thanks to Richard, uh, Francis and Suzanne. After the break, the uncomfortable aftermath of Depp versus Heard and a busy weekend ahead for Dublin Airport. We'll have our week in review. Stay with us. Welcome back now for our Week in Review. Political correspondent for the Irish Examiner, Aoife Moore, is still with me. Also on our panel tonight is executive editor of the Daily Mail Group Ireland, John Lee, and journalist Enda Brady. Our first topic in the aftermath of the Amber Heard versus Johnny Depp court ruling, Heard's attorney, Elaine charlson Bredhoff spoke to NBC and said that the coverage of the case has damaged the position of women who come out against their accusers. Take a look. Unless you pull out your phone and you video your spouse or your significant other beating you, e effectively, you won't be believed. This is a setback for all women in and outside the courtroom. She was demonized here. Um, she was demonized here. Aoife, um, did you first follow this case? Because it went on for some six weeks. There was hours of evidence given. Um, do, did you follow it and, and what did you make of that decision then that, that they came to last night? I made a decision to only read um, court reports. There was so much misinformation on TikTok and Instagram. There was badly edited videos together um, in order to make Amber Heard look uh, manipulative or like she was a liar. I found the whole thing really jarring. Um, I know and love people who have been victims of domestic violence and I thought the monstering of Amber Heard was really disappointing. It goes to a larger problem in society about women, about this notion of a perfect victim. I thought by the end of it, there was no way that she could have won the, the billions and billions of views and clicks on these, we know, websites that were bolstered by right-wing websites. They were paying for these ads, paying for this No, it was a jury, obviously, who made the ultimate decision there. So yeah, you're saying there was, was a, sort of a jury, influence The jury that. were not sequestered. Therefore, they, if they went home and read the papers and read it on social media, no one would know because they weren't, they weren't sequestered. I would also point out that in a British court, it was found that Johnny Depp had abused Amber Heard on 12 different occasions, and that was found to be substantially true. So in one jurisdiction, it was found that he did abuse her, and in another, that it didn't. I think that aside, I think what we saw was the monstering of victims, and I have no doubt that this case will put women off coming forward about their abuser, because what we have seen from society on Amber Heard will affect people for a long time. Uh 
Yeah, and I mean, that's one of the points that's been made about this because we saw this played out so publicly, John. And and for many people who are catching up and getting their views on this, on who was right and who was wrong, in what turned out to be a very black and white uh, presentation of it online, it was played out in a series of TikTok videos and memes. That's ultimately how a lot of people got their information and drew their conclusions that were then all played out in social media. Well, that's a wider issue about how people consume their news. Um, but I think, I think the public that consume the news have, are more intelligent than that. They'll absorb what happened here. They can't. I don't think anyone can doubt some of the claims that it'll discourage women from coming forward. I don't think Johnny Depp is somebody that I would admire. Um, before or after this trial, I think there was a. There was a long discussion of his character. Um, if anyone thinks that he's come out of it well, I don't think they're correct. <clears throat> I was reading a piece in the New York Post um, by a woman called Maureen Callahan. I would encourage anyone to read it, that it, 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 it deconstructs Johnny Depp. Um, let's, let, let's, let, let's, does, let's have the have fallout to, You'd ha have to happen. say that, that and, Amber Heard was ultimately the one who, who was vilified and ultimately that's the way the jury came down on her in this in this defamation oh, case. He'll get work again. But uh, she I, won't. As I said, there's a broader discussion there about courtrooms and, and how they're conducted and how um, this was, let's not forget, a defamation case. It wasn't a trial where Johnny Depp was on trial for domestic abuse. Um, it's, it's questionable when you look at something like this through the prism of Hollywood, whether whether we can determine that any justice was given. Um, mm. But I think this this kind of narrative that Johnny Depp did, did, did well out of this, I can't see how he came out of it as, well, as a person that one, yeah. one would respect. I mean, Amber Heard and how she yeah. has suffered is, is, is another discussion. And I can't, I can't say um, with certainty that this will discourage women from coming forward other than listen to people who have said that, respected commentators who've said that this will discourage women from coming forward to discuss and seek justice for um, domestic abuse they've suffered and undoubtedly course, it will do that. Of course, and the other side to this is a person's right to their good name and Johnny Depp fought for that and ultimately he won on that front and that's what supporters of Johnny Depp would say was who really is the victim here? Um, and how how all of that is is playing into it as well. But the what is interesting, I think, was sort of the fandom and the legions of fans who all came uh, and so clearly came down on one side over another. Claire, I think I found this a very difficult case to follow, really, because we'd had kind of everything that happened in the UK, you know, previously when the judge made the decision in London at the High Court. So Amber Heard won in London, and the jury in the United States sided with Johnny Depp. But I just I just think. They've both been really poorly advised. I don't think it's ever a great idea to wash your laundry quite literally in public in the way that they did. And it was just excruciating, the detail. And the really sad thing is you've got two people who ultimately once must have really liked each other and it all ends up coming to where it's come. And in terms of TikTok and social media, just what matters is what's said in the courtroom, what's said in the evidence. And the jury have found predominantly in his favour on this occasion. OK, well, let's move to a big story back home this week and that of the chaos at Dublin Airport. Um, the big question here is, what can we expect this weekend? It's been at the heart of like parliamentary party meetings where 
No one's, uh, no one's been very happy at the handling of this. We had the chief executive of the DAA up getting an Oireachtas grilling for hours on end, it appears. Uh, do you think they're going to get it right uh, and, and get, through, get through the summer? Because people are really stressed out about it. They're already stressed out enough, aren't they, when it comes to yeah, getting I mean, away on holiday? Would, you would like to hope so, but I've, I, I don't have a lot of confidence. I was one of those people. I had a flight to Brussels on Monday um, for the European um, Council and I arrived hours early. The queues were insane. This is not any slight on the workers because I can't imagine what they were going through. Yeah. Um, you know, the, we heard from the DAA, they said that they are very, very confident that they won't, we won't see a repeat. Um, we saw today of, you know, the construction of these holding areas where people are going to have to wait if they arrive too early for their flight. I can... Because they don't have the one set up in the car park yet. So this is the outside space with a canopy, I, can... I think, as I understand for this weekend. Listen, I am happy to be proved wrong, but I think the notion of Ireland in Irish summer and putting an outdoor waiting area outside a car park, if you're traveling with young children yeah. or elderly parents or people with disability issues, I think it is a nightmare waiting to happen. Um, I don't think the government have been tough enough um, on DAA. Like, we've had them in front of the committee. I was talking to... Do you to think they just kind of allowed those jobs to go and and for, for that to happen? Like, it's unclear. There just seems to be a total breakdown in communication. I would also there around clearly, that. You know, we, we are going to have security officers now coming up from Cork Airport in order, you know, to try and help them. And I know there are issues with um, security and they have to, you know, have these people trained or whatever <laughs> else, but they have not said that they're going to do is pay these people more money to do this job. And I think that might be some place where they could start. Yeah, and you decided to come over and get the ferry. You didn't want to get a flight. Yeah. But I mean, is this a problem? It's it's not just a Dublin problem. It's not just an Irish problem per se. We've had, there's been huge issues in the UK, Manchester Airport. Manchester um, Airport's been a disaster for weeks and it is getting better. But I think what has happened is you've got to question the management in Dublin Airport. They cut too deep. You look at the wages people are, are being paid for what is a very serious job and a very significant part of the security operation in any airport. Everyone wants to be able to fly planes securely, but they've cut too deep. And ultimately, would you have any confidence in going out there this weekend? I mean, the reputational damage to this country ha has been appalling because people make videos, they go off on social media, and you've got everyone looking in laughing because our main national airport can't do its primary function. And if you look around the country, you know, some leadership should have kicked in by now. Um, we've got Waterford Airport sitting there. Mm. Put the flights somewhere else, move them out. And if you can't get people in, train them up. And they've basically cut too deep, too far. And they should have seen this coming. They should have been ramping up from October yeah. onwards. And there were calls of bringing the, the army in. We heard it from Ryanair, not for the first time. Your <laughs> head's in your hands over that one. Uh, is, is, there, is there a crisis in this country that we don't hear about the um, army coming in? The fact is, a year ago, the um, the DAA decided to have a redundancy scheme that flagged that they were going to let a third of their workers go. That was the 3,000 workers... Because they said they were losing and a million euro a day. 96% of air traffic um, had, had fallen off a cliff at the time. Did they expect, and they must have known something you and I didn't know, that air travel was finished forever? <laughs> now, there was... There, there, were, there were studies which, which said that perhaps air travel wouldn't come back to full capacity until 2025, 2026. Yes, air travel has resumed extensively since October, November of last mm -hmm. year. We had problems in Dublin Airport in, um, in um, March. 
I heard Aoife saying earlier on that some government ministers are like commentators. The, the Department of Transport had to give licence to the DAA to conduct that redundancy scheme in the first, case, uh, first place. Eamon Ryan has been aware there's been problems in Dublin airports since February. February March, and and I complaints think, that the ministers all, have all been very quiet around this one as well. <coughs> Pardon? Complaints from that, you know, at ministerial level, there's been, it, it, they haven't been very vocal on, on this particular issue. They've been hiding out this week. No, we, we, we difficulty getting to press conferences that um, uh, Eamon Ryan had called this week, political correspondents. So, you, you know, air travel was not going to end forever. How could you let a third year of a workforce go and then expect to be hiring back those specialised workers in the, in the short period of time they're expected exactly. to and they haven't done so? Yeah, and it was pointed out this week that Paul Murphy from People Before Profit pointed out the problems with the airport security contracts last year. Um, and Ryan and nothing was done about it. So they can't say that they didn't know. And now we're all paying the price or anyone who wants to go on holidays is Ch paying the price. Chickens have come home to roost. We'll leave it there for now. We'll continue with our week in review after the break. Stay with us. Welcome back to our Week in Review. Aoife Moore, John Lee and Nenda Brady still with me. And Aoife, to come to you, it's uh, only a matter of days since the Uvalde um, shooting, the mass shooting that led to 19 children dying and two teachers um, shot dead um, by a lone gunman. The funerals took place this week, but I think what will really surprise people, it's just out of the headlines, 17 mass shootings have taken place since Uvalde in the States, 14 taking place over Memorial Day weekend. There has, from the Sandy Hook Elementary School shooting, that shooting uh, years ago, there have been 900 school shootings alone since Sandy Hook, where we saw kindergarten age children being shot. I find it mad that the president of America can be asking for help. He has no power to change this, that he has completely held the ransom, for want of a better term, by the Republicans. And we have, you know, Republican congressmen coming out saying, it's not guns, it's mental health, it's open doors, it's this, that and the other. This is the only country in the world where this happens. You know, we saw what happened after Dunblane, we saw what happened after Port Arthur. They tightened their gun laws and they never had another mass shooting. It's so, so depressing. And I think we all count ourselves incredibly lucky that I think sometimes that we just don't know we're living here when it comes to that kind of culture because I can't relate to it at all. I don't think any of us can. Yeah, and, and John, um, you know, Joe Biden, vowing to push for a more rational approach to gun regulation, but you'd wonder, it seems like, again, he's a he's a bystander with all of this happening and powerless to do anything. Well, that's the, 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 the that's what seems to be well, he's coming the US from president. the States. He's not powerless, but, um, you know, the Congress has been deadlocked, it seems, since Lyndon Johnson in the, in the, in the late 60s. Yeah. He showed the ability to get them to bring through legislation. <clears throat> since then, probably since Bill Clinton's time, it's become more polarised. Um, when you have the last and perhaps the next president of the United States appearing at an NRA rally, one wonders what hope you have of seeing anything done. He clearly thought, saw, saw it as politically advantageous to appear at that. Mm. Therefore, he believes his constituency there that supports the, min the maintenance of widespread private gun ownership. And 
one would find it hard to be optimistic there'll be a huge change. Uh, moving on to some celebrations and plenty of celebrations we're seeing um, in the UK this weekend for the Queen's 70th Jubilee. Uh, Queen Elizabeth herself, though, bowing out of her own party. Tell us about that, Enda. So what we've heard in the last couple of hours from the palace is that she suffered discomfort today during some of the celebrations and she's not attending the ceremony of Thanksgiving tomorrow evening at St Paul's Cathedral. So she won't be there. Obviously, the Jubilee continues. It's day two, but... I, th I think there's been a realisation in the last few weeks and months in the UK, given the Queen's health problems, mobility problems, that this lady can't go on forever and that we are now nearing a stage where Prince Charles will be taking over, whether he steps in on a more kind of permanent basis or a more regular basis. Yeah. And it's also led to the question about the, the point of the royals when you have this monarch who's been 70 years on the throne and we have then a cost of living crisis and all these things that are happening and then this massive spend, I imagine, on these jubilee yeah, celebrations. I think, look, I think... With somebody who, who sort of is on is on the way out, out of public life herself that's led to that conversation being had, would you say, Enda? It's a huge distraction, I would say. I, I think it's great for the government. This gets Boris Johnson away from negative headlines for a few days. If you look at the UK right now, I listened earlier on when the panel were discussing the cost of living crisis here, 2.2 million children living in poverty in the UK. 2,200 food banks in the last 12 years of Conservative government. And this jubilee happens. And yes, it's wonderful. Mm. You've got a lady the whole of the United Kingdom and the Commonwealth respects and there's profound affection for her. But I would say, do they have the same respect for Prince Charles? What is going to happen? The future, the House of Windsor. I mean, it's a fascinating yeah. time. I mean, I mean, yeah. Uh, Queen Elizabeth's kids, let's talk about Prince Andrew because he was not in attendance. A coincidental case of COVID forcing him to be sidelined here. Um, yeah. I mean, you know, interesting on this one because, of course, he stopped being a work, working royal um, and his titles were stripped after that US civil sex assault case. Yeah, and it'll be really hard for him um, to sweat and if he gets a fever, you know, because of his medical condition. Listen, I totally agree um, with Enda. I think the respect for... The royal family is very much born in with the Queen. I think that will um, that will wane uh, with Prince Charles. The people of Britain do not have hold him in the same kind of respect. And I think it's the fact that she's a little lady and she's done it for a long time. I think that's the big draw there. I don't think that the royal family are going to be around for a very long time after this. And then we had this symbolic move, which was interesting. Michelle O'Neill among those congratulating um, the Queen on her, her tenure. Um, saying, you know, in a letter, saying it was a historic moment, especially for all of those from Unionist and British tradition on the island of Ireland and across these islands with whom uh, great pride and devotion hold you very dear. Um, so big words from Michelle O'Neill there. And I think it was following on, of course, from that very symbolic move, Martin McGuinness to meet with the Queen when she was over those years ago. It seems like uh, canny politics that... Um Arlene Foster greeted it with with great warm as well warmth as well that move. I think in a, in a in an era of further polarisation in, North, in Northern Ireland, and let's not forget they they can't get an assembly up and running to extend that olive branch to the mm. unionist community and the British community was a canny move, and I prob I'm sure it was heartfelt as well. Um, you know, I think there's widespread. Uh, affection for the, for the Queen of England. I don't really think it's possible that they will they'll fade off into the distance. The smart thing, the royals have always shown their ability to survive. If you go back to World War One, 
um, they showed... But the spend it, and the amount of what, public money <clears throat> that goes into the royal was, family and maintaining them... What it, I was about to say is I, I think the future for them would be a complete um, receding from that widespread group of royals and maybe the, the monarch, as, as we see... Plan. That's Charles's yes. plan, a slim-down monarchy. Yeah. Like, he, he has made that quite clear in briefings, you know, that slim-down monarchy is the way forward. And look, it's getting smaller. Harry's opted out. Meghan's gone with him. They've gone off to California. Andrew can't be seen in public. You know, the House of Windsor <laughs> is, you know, by design or by accident, is getting smaller. And once Charles is in, I would imagine he will just strim off all the cousins. Stragglers. Stragglers, the yeah. hangers-on. And he, he's read the room because... Trust me, it's, you know, the UK is in a difficult place right now. OK, finally, we've just got a chance, I think, to show you pictures of some dramatic pictures this week. That's uh, the Mona Lisa uh, getting pied in a climate protest. What did uh, Mona Lisa ever do to anyone really here? But uh, these were just pictures that emerged from Paris and the Louvre. Um, quite dramatic, but again, showing us that that climate crisis hasn't gone away and people who want to do something about it will... will do anything to draw the world's attention to it. I think we've had some of the most shocking reports about the climate emergency that we've had in the last year. We know that we are desperately running out of time and if those scientific reports do not focus people's minds, then I don't think smear and cake on the Mona Lisa is going to do much difference either. OK, that's it from us. My thanks to Aoife, to John, to Enda, all of our guests tonight. Our programme is available as a podcast on all major platforms. You can also now find us on Instagram, tonight, VMTV, from all the late team here. Good night. Take care. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series.